This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, edited by Sumeya Awad and Brian Bean. Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, systematically tackles a number of important aspects of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, contextualizing it in an increasingly polarized world and offering a socialist perspective on how full liberation can be won. Through an internationalist, anti-imperialist lens, this book explores the links between the struggle for freedom in the United States and that in Palestine and beyond. It examines both the historical and contemporary trajectory of the Palestine Solidarity Movement in order to glean lessons for today's organizers, and compellingly lays out the argument that, in order to achieve justice in Palestine, the movement has to take up the question of socialism, regionally and internationally. As Nura Erekat says of the book, quote, the volume provides the reader with an internationalist framework defined as a commitment to anti-imperialism and uses it to place Palestine into local, regional, and global historical context. The book connects the past to our present and, despite the daunting odds before us, sustains a commitment to a socialist future where all of us are free because all of us are free. Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, edited by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the conversation about Palestine that I needed to have right now, and I had it with Nura Arakat and Ariel Angel. I do think and hope that you'll find it useful. Very soon, within a day, we'll be posting a second episode on Palestine that condenses some of the many interviews we've done on Palestine in the past. Next week, I'll be interviewing Tarek Bakoni on the history of Hamas. Briefly, before we get started, please take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig because this podcast runs entirely on the honor system because listeners like you voluntarily support us. Please don't free ride if you can afford to contribute. We do need you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the dig. I'm also including a link for Palestinian relief in the show notes. Donate generously. Okay. Here's Noura Erekat and Ariel Angel. Noura Erekat is a Palestinian human rights attorney and professor at Rutgers, New Brunswick. She's a co-founding board member of Jadalia Ezine, an editorial board member of the Journal of Palestine Studies, and the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Ariel Angel is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents, the leading magazine of the Jewish-American left. Erekat and Ariel Angel. Welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thanks. Let's start with what's happening right now in, in Palestine, where vast numbers of people have been displaced from their homes since Israel ordered the evacuation of the entire northern section of Gaza amid constant airstrikes and what appears to be an imminent ground invasion. How would you contextualize the severity and scale of what's underway in terms of the long history of Israeli assaults and also in terms of the norms and rules that purportedly govern modern warfare. Is this indeed a second Nakba in the making, potentially? So, Daniel, I want to report back and honor the voices on the ground in Gaza who are withstanding this genocidal warfare and sharing that this is unlike anything they've ever endured before. It's more savage and ruthless and cruel than the 2014-51 day onslaught. It's more cruel than the 2008 and 2012 and even the 2021 
offensives that what they are enduring right now, they say that never before did they not have access to water, to food, where they really are at a loss of where to go and what to do. The death toll of Palestinians, 3,000, and certainly the injured above 10,000. I am reticent to even repeat these numbers because it's precisely these mass casualties that have desensitized audiences to Palestinian death. We do not even have time to honor each life. And so the expectation is that Palestinians die and they die in vast numbers. And then we get pushback. Well, it couldn't be genocidal because if Israel wanted, it would have killed much more. So we are not not only facing this absolute mass atrocity, this catastrophic failure of humanity, but in the midst of it, do not have time to mourn or to grieve and cannot even expect remedy and at stake even is getting empathy. So this is certainly unlike anything else. Yes, it is absolutely part and parcel of a structural condition of Nakba, which is an ongoing and it never stopped. It's an ongoing condition. We're seeing it at a massive scale in these very uh, horrific moments. And none of this is in accordance with international law. Zero negative. It is a crime against humanity. It is genocide. It is explicit war crimes supported by an enthusiastic international community and aided and abetted by a mainstream media infrastructure. Ariel? The only thing, I mean, the only thing that I will say is that this is consistent with the people that we've been in touch with in Gaza and what they're telling us and that this is like unlike anything that they've ever experienced. And also that like that the Israeli government is expressing genocidal intent. I mean, like, it's not like they, that has been very clear. I mean, you can look at Yoav Gallant, the minister of defense saying we're fighting human animals. There was something coming out of the Knesset today saying the children of Gaza brought it on themselves. Uh, President Isaac Herzog has talked about uh, how there's no distinction between civilians and Hamas. And, and in fact, people have said this on on television, on like in the media, there's a banner hanging uh, from a overpass in in Tel Aviv that says zero Gazans. I mean, this is a full, this is the full expression of genocidal intent. And I think when I look at it, I I feel a lot of fear sometimes that there's a way in which the international community almost like, like wants wants this to happen, like wants the wants this to be the way that it is resolved or something. There's something about the the response that is so, yeah, enthusiastic as Nora said, um, and it's 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 terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah, it really struck me on I think it was October twelfth early in this Israeli assault where the Israeli Air Force posted images of entirely leveled Gaza neighborhoods, writing quote. Dozens of fighter jets and helicopters attacked attacked a series of terrorist targets of the Hamas terrorist organization throughout the Gaza Strip. So far, the IAF has dropped about 6,000 bombs against Hamas targets. And so there's a sort of ordinary horror of colonial and imperial brutality. But what's really striking here is that Israel is not hiding what it's doing so that it needs to be uncovered by investigative journalists or something like that. It's advertising the crimes it's committing What's at work with the way Israel brazenly celebrates this, its violence as being unrestrained and without limit? I, I mean, I think this is consistent with what we've been seeing with this government over the last year. Um, you have a government that is explicitly eliminationist. I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, you know, they've been saying the quiet part out loud. I think they're also expressing uh, Israeli political opinion to some extent, not uh, not uniformly, obviously, nothing is uniform, but this is the way that people on talking on social media and, you know, this, this is the way that people are speaking. So we have seen this. This is the culmination of the politics that have been at play for a very long time. And they are... They are playing out in front of our eyes in the way that that if you've been paying attention is not unexpected and is still shocking. Nura? I mean, we've been seeing very, very deliberately 
since 2006 and more pointedly in 2008, nine, and then ratcheting up through 2014, a way that Israel's um, statespersons, apologists, their diplomatic corps, their media corps have transformed the word Hamas, those five letters into an entire discourse where nothing else needs to be said. They don't need to explain anything. They don't need to respond to the type of force that they're using. They don't need to uh, tell you what's happening to whom and where. They say Hamas, and that now suddenly signifies an entire discourse that alleviates it of any responsibility and facilitates these mass atrocities. And I think that we saw that repeated in instantly and repeatedly in, in the aftermath of the October 7th operations where media not only jumped on the bandwagon of saying Hamas without having any idea of who they are, right? They're immediately describing them as a terrorist organization in conformity with U.S. listing and European policy, but have not at all dealt with how it is actually a political party and on a spectrum of political parties that is a nascent sovereign that has a military wing and a and a political wing they have not at all in you know interrogated its own internal discord and rivalry with other palestinian political parties and instead that what the this reaction had was to build on the discourse of hamas which we you know hitherto had assumed was terrorist because that's what we were told to now also accepting that it was barbaric, it was primordial, it was savage, it was bloodlusting. And so we have an entire racial trope that has deliberately removed the context in order for us to uh, you know, come to a, a common sense logical conclusion that nothing, nothing is, is, no policy is adequate to respond to Hamas, except for outright annihilation at whatever cost. And so this is what we're seeing. This is precisely what we're seeing, which has put us, the scholars, the analysts, the advocates in a very difficult position who in our eagerness to lay a pathway to a political solution have to provide some sort of context for what's happening. The structure of violence that's giving rise to these crises is putting us in a position of now explaining who Hamas is in a moment where even that explanation becomes self-incriminating. Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it. Yeah, because we haven't agreed that we're all evil, right? And somehow now we are also the enemy of humanity in, in urging for a context that will help us get out of this, not just this crisis, but of this, this trap and this settler colonial condition that has marked Palestinians for removal and certainly those in Gaza for sure and slow death. Uh, and so it's been, an, it's been an incredibly difficult situation and people are at risk. People are at risk. A young, obviously the Palestinians who are being massacred but also people who are advocating for something else, right? This young six-year-old who was stabbed 26 times in Chicago, in Plainfield, Illinois, he was stabbed precisely because of this genocidal warfare, this warmongering that all Muslims are terrorists and terrorists are, are basically a disease and there's no negotiating with them and you can't talk with them. So you, you have to eradicate them. And that even if, you know, don't believe anybody because you can't trust who they are inside. We may, and this is shit I get all the time. You sound reasonable, but people want to open up my heart to see what's really inside. We're in a near impossible situation that has reached hysteric levels um, in this moment. And I mean, the consequences, the consequences, frankly, are not, obviously they're born by Palestinians where this is horrible, horrible, horrible. This is a, this is a, we're, we're watching basically a death of humanity, a failure of, of whatever. If there was ever a project called humanity, we're watching it fail. 
there are fewer discourses that are that are more confused than mainstream conversations around Israel and Palestine. And and the core obfuscation, it seems to me, is this foundational denial or disavowal of Israel being a settler colony. And it's that denial, it seems, that is then foundational to every other single obfuscation. Why and how did the very settler colonial nature of the Zionist project get denied and disavowed in the bizarre and powerful way that it has? And then and then conversely, how does acknowledging and understanding that that fact shape one's analysis of what's happening in Israel-Palestine, including right now and what must happen to reach a just solution there? I think we have to recognize, first of all, that settler colonialism is often denied. I mean, especially as it's happening, because nobody wants to, or even if it's embraced as it's happening, the settler doesn't want to embrace a position in which they have to be accountable for themselves as settlers. I mean, that is just like a, a the way it works, you know? And I think it's not like the United States is having some great reckoning with ourselves as settlers and therefore, you know, like, but we can't understand why Israel is not reckoning with themselves as settlers. I mean, let's be equal opportunity. I think it's useful not to exceptionalize in this regard. But I do think that there is something that makes the situation exceptional, which is the fact that in thinking about in reading Césaire, for example, in the ways that the Holocaust and fascism are understand as, understood as colonialism turned inward, for example. And I've seen that also repeated in, in radical Palestinian texts as well and in films and stuff like that, to, to have an understanding in which the Jews of Europe were also experiencing some kind of colonial violence for them to go, you know, some of them refugees, some of them not, but, but you know, a fair amount of them refugees to go settle the land of Palestine, I think that really crosses people's wires in a really, really difficult way. And, and I, you know, in some ways, I think that, that it should in, in the sense of like thinking about what it would mean to have a shared context, what it would mean not to have a solution to this in which one people have to leave, you know, even if it's the settlers. But I also think that it doesn't deny, like, we have to face the reality that this is the structure of settler colonialism playing out in front of our eyes. You know, it doesn't change the structure and the way that the structure works. And in fact, there there were other settler colonial uh, situations where the settlers themselves understood themselves as victims or understood themselves as escaping something else, too. I mean, like, we can't exceptionalize in that direction either, you know. So, I mean, for me... I want to look at that as a site of, or like that history, that shared history on some level that I'm not saying like that there's a, that this is like exactly the same situation or something, but as like an opportunity to try to get somewhere better, that feels very far away, obviously, right now. People in power don't want to give their privileges away. Everybody knows that, so. Nora? I think that this is a really important question and the, and the primary, you know, challenge that we're having right now of, you know, the, these multiple fronts that we're facing are, are facing them both, you know, as Ariel is pointing out, uh, Jewish people as perpetual victims facing out of, um, that somehow there's a through line be between, uh, Nazi atrocities and Palestinian resistance. I mean, all of these are, are built upon an edifice of settler uh, acceptance, where where the settler colonial project, you know, at its apex, makes itself invisible. A native Lebanese scholar, a friend of mine, Maya Mcdashi, was also highlighting to me some of even some of the you know some of the chants and the things that Palestinians here in on Turtle Island like to say when you know they're calling for for settlers to go home you know, calling on all Israeli settlers to go home with zero irony to the fact that we're on stolen land. There is a way in which settler colonialism makes itself invisible even to those who are opposed to settler colonialism. You know, um, she described it as uh, a settler confidence. There is such a deep settler confidence that we don't even, you know, we're not even criticizing or self-aware and reflexive of these terms. And so, you know, Israel has done this at, at multiple junctures in multiple ways. 
in the ways that are most known to us, it's to say that there is no other option besides, you know, a settler colony in order to ensure Jewish safety and to combat anti-Semitism, which could not be farther from the truth. Zionist settler colonization did not happen in order to create safety. It precedes, you know, it's a response to the Jewish question, but it's not a response to genocide that we saw in the Second World War. It's a response to the question of how Jews can finally earn acceptance within Europe. So establishing the settler colony was about earning acceptance within Europe um, in a way that internalized anti-Semitism and all of its exclusionary orientalist tropes of, you know, being too religious, dirty, using, you know, um, an unsophisticated language, as they pointed out to Yiddish, um, you know, too, too enclosed um, and ghettoizing, right? Rather than combat these tropes and to challenge the, the you know, the European Enlightenment's concept of who constitutes the quintessential human. Instead, Zionism internalized all of these things in order to be accepted within this white supremacist framing. And then we see that, you know, we see that project transformed into a necessary refuge. And then we we're seeing it now in its most perverse as um, a bid for Israeli indigeneity. I mean, they've transformed this now that they are the original um, inhabitants and want to go back and chronicle thousands of years of history of who was there first in a way that completely is completely negated by a historical record where Israel and Zionists, right? Theodor Herzl, Chaim Wiseman, and other you know Zionist leaders described themselves as a settler project. They understood themselves as a settler project. They understood themselves as a civilizing project. They wanted to civilize the brown, the Middle Eastern um, Jew in order now to make them properly European as well. If this was about indigeneity, then why isn't there a respect for the land? If this was about indigeneity, then why not trace yourself to the people who have who have directly remained on this land? One of the one of the most difficult things right now, discursively, in trying to explain to people that there's a genocide against Palestinians, is that Israel and its you know genocidaire allies have co-opted that language in trying to create a through line between Nazi atrocities and the October seventh operation, right? Um, and in order to achieve that. They were they were removing context on purpose and then to make it this is about attacking Jews. Jews are again under attack. And Ross Segal highlighted, well, part of the problem there is that we have to be careful to to describe the civilian targets as Israeli citizens, which is very particular and very unique because that makes clear Jews around the world are not at harm. This is not another instance, right, of, of a racist genocidal project that, you know, to achieve white purity or Aryan purity or any kind of purity. This is a project that is taking aim at a political structure. And so that even even there, we have to be really careful, which is why recently, if you've seen Netanyahu and Isaac Herzog and others have addressed the world, not as, as representatives of Israel, but as Jewish men on purpose, and also why the the line in the Jewish community is like the most number of Jews who were killed since the Holocaust, like which like if if you are a person who really, really cares about that scale, then you should recognize that in the last couple of years, Palestinians have had massacres of this size multiple times and also gradually over that period. And so if like this scale is really upsetting to you, <laughs> you know, there should be a. a uh, you know, a framework in which it's it's recognized alongside the casualties on the Palestinian side. I, I, I'm sorry, I just wanted to clarify because I feel like I ended up speaking in two registers at once and I just wanted to clarify a few things. One is that I think that there's a, there's a conversation that happens on the level of like the outside world, you know, and why the outside world can't see this situation as settler colonial. I mean, I think, Nora, you're, you spoke very uh, precisely about the way that the settler colony makes itself invisible. And I also think 
there's just an enormous amount of resources like on a very material level behind that project in the form of Israeli Hasbara and how that like how that works uh, in our world. What I was talking about is actually a different thing, which like I think we'll get into at some point, which is just about the way that we talk about these issues on the left and like the difficulty even on the left of trying to understand what it means that Israel is a settler colony and what should be done about it and and how we define decolonization in this moment and the importance of that. And so I guess like that's a distinction that I want to put on the table because I feel like it was getting muddled or confused in in the way that we were talking about it before. Peter Beinart wrote a, a New York Times op-ed on Sunday, I believe, looking back to South Africa's ANC and their, their turn away from committing violence against South African civilians. And he made the case that they were able to do that and wanted to do that because the nonviolent struggle against apartheid was receiving a, a positive response from global power brokers. Whereas for Palestinians, every effort at nonviolent resistance has been viciously demonized by Israel and the United States and so many other powerful forces. What various forms has nonviolent struggle taken since the advent of Zionist colonization from, from Land Day in 1976 through the, the first intifada of the, the late 80s and early 90s through, through BDS and the Great March of Return at the Gaza border fence in, in 2018 and 2019? And then how have the responses to those struggles from Israel, from the United States, from other relevant parties, how have those responses that so often characterized nonviolent struggle as anti-Semitic and even even terroristic, how have those responses shaped the course of the Palestinian national movement, violent, nonviolent, and also tactics tactics and strategies that complicate that that binary entirely? That's a really big question, Daniel. And I think that, you know, one of the challenges in answering it is the fact that um, Palestinian struggle is is happening at multiple registers and not all of it is necessarily organized in a way with a clear chain of command as it has been historically. And so where do we start? For one is to remind the audience that Nelson Mandela, who's now, you know, in this revisionist history is hailed as a, a, a quintessential model of freedom, right? Remained on the U.S. State Department list of terrorism until 2008. And started as an Afrikaners to the sea uh, kind of figure. Like he wasn't, he wasn't the person who he is now considered to be in, when he started his political journey. But, you know, in, in also just to remind audiences, and I'm reminding myself as well as I feel like this, you know, I'm pushing up against this maddening discourse, that history will vindicate us. You know, we, we things are controversial until they're not. And so I guess on the question of well, what about tactics and resistance, Palestinians um, who organized themselves, various Palestinian militias who came together to basically take over the PLO in 1968, though it was established four years prior as basically an Arab elitist institution, the, it was the Palestinian militias in the aftermath of their first, what they considered their first um, successful battle, uh, offensive military confrontation with Israel in the Karame battle, then use that notoriety in order to take over the PLO and to declare that there will be a complete um, struggle for liberation with armed resistance. And that was resonant in an anti-colonial context where the half the world is on fire um, in anti-colonial struggle. Right. From Mozambique to Angola to South Africa uh, um, and Guinea and beyond Vietnam, certainly like th this Palestine was central to this, you know, third world uprising and maintain that mantra of armed resistance. And not only did they maintain the mantra, but they were also supported financially and militarily. And were, you know, up until 1973, had the backing of Arab conventional armies. But in the aftermath of the War of 1973, Egypt and Syria made clear that there will be no conventional war against liberation. It's done. That project is done. Should Palestinians continue with that, it would be, you know, cross-border attacks without any significant support. 
And so the seeds become planted for a diplomatic solution that ultimately results in the disastrous form of of the Oslo, uh, you know, agreement, which, you know, is a perversion of any vision of a diplomatic way forward. But they're planted in that in that moment, in that euphoria moment where the October 1973 war forever and irreversibly shifts the balance of power in the Middle East. What we see by in as a precondition for the Palestinian leadership to enter into this Oslo agreement is they they have to renounce armed resistance. And this is part of the chasm with Hamas when Hamas and Hamas is established at this around the same time, at the same time, and basically says, we don't renounce armed resistance. We're not free yet. Why would you why give up this negotiating leverage when all they got was recognition from the settler sovereign as an entity? but nothing else. And yet we're giving up, you know, even the right to self-defense in this context. From that point onward, we're now seeing multiple, multiple strategies from different leaderships, as we see from Hamas that hasn't renounced armed resistance. And that resistance, by the way, that use of armed force is regulated by international law. And it's worthwhile to point out that the targeting of civilians, even for nascent sovereigns, is not permissible, that that is criminal, that even these rights that the anti-colonial movement created were not unqualified. And they understood that, abrogating them, not abrogating them. I'm just telling you here about the legal discourse. Meanwhile, Palestinian civil society has historically and continuously been leading all sorts of movement. Primary amongst them is nonviolent movement. The first boycott is in 1936 against the British. And then we see multiple boycotts. Then we see the boycott divestment and sanctions campaign in 2005 that now 34 U.S. states have made illegal. We also see in 2010 civilian convoys who are boarding flotillas to break the blockade. We see the Palestinians in the in the Great March of Return marching in masks week after week, even if they're being shot from a 300 meter distance by snipers. Quintessential forms of nonviolence who had no audience. And so, you know, the message has consistently been to Palestinians regardless. It's not how you resist. It's that you resist at all. The only thing that's been accepted for Palestinians is capitulation. And, you know, those who want, you know, just to accept, to begin from accepting Israel as as a political fact and then moving forward. But Palestinians have consistently said, we want decolonization. This political fact doesn't negate the possibility of decolonization. And that's what, um, that's where we see now a lot of, you know, it's it's, it's really difficult right now. I mean, I think for all the reasons that Nora said, it's very, very difficult to say that in this because they have tried it. And I actually, one thing that I hope comes out of this, that I do hope comes out of this, is that Americans and and American Jews in particular take another look at BDS um, and start to, to take that seriously. I feel like there's a lot of misinformation. People really don't know what it is. And it's been demonized, as Nora said. I think it's thirty. I think it's thirty-seven states in which it's uh, criminalized um, in some form, or not criminalized, but where there are anti-BDS laws on the books. I think the question is basically which politics we want to build towards in this moment, and with a recognition that there is historically a dynamic between violent and nonviolent forms of politics that work together. I mean, I think, you know, after Peter wrote his piece, I heard from advisor of mine, who is a Jewish person who was in the ANC, who was like, this is such a rosy history. And and specifically just around the fact that there were these arguments going on in that, in the movement, throughout the movement, even up until it, it, you know, sort of resolved itself, or even up until the moment of negotiation around violence. And also that the people who were committing violent acts or who were on that wing of the ANC were also understood as political actors. They weren't understood as, as outside of the movement or, you know, they were granted, they were granted a kind of clemency during the truth, you know, the, the, the reconciliation process because they were understood as political actors and not, and not people who are acting outside of like an ethical framework or acting outside of a, a liberation framework. So 
I think the question that I, a lot of people are struggling with is how to recognize that. I mean, I'm not speaking for anyone really, except for the communities that I, you know, that I'm closest to and listening to right now, but how to recognize that and also try to build toward the politics that we want to see in the moment or that we want to be a part of, you know? And I think it's, I think it's not an easy question. I'm Naomi Klein, and you're listening to The Dig, my go-to podcast for the most thoughtful, in-depth conversation on the left. It's an incredible place to be exposed to new ideas and new writing. And if you can, please become a sustaining supporter at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles. Perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is On Edward Said, Remembrance of Things Past by Hamid Dabashi. Edward Said was a towering figure in post-colonial studies and in the struggle for justice in his native Palestine, best known for his critique of Orientalism in Western portrayals of the Middle East. As a public intellectual, activist, and scholar, Said forever changed how we read the world around us and left an indelible mark on subsequent generations. Hamid Dabashi, himself a leading thinker and critical public voice, offers a unique collection of reminiscences, travelogues, and essays that document his own close and long-standing scholarly, personal, and political relationship with Said. In the process, they place the enduring significance of Edward Said's legacy in an unfolding context and locate his work within the moral imagination and environment of the time. On Edward Said, Remembrance of Things Past, by Hamid Dabashi, out now from Haymarket Books. This is a classic, basic, but I think very important question. Why... Why is the U.S. government and media so resolutely pro-Israel? The the U.S. supports and has supported so many murderous regimes around the world, currently, throughout time, etc. But there's something that feels uniquely extreme about the uniformity and vociferousness of American elite support for, for Israel, particularly now in the face of such a brazenly genocidal campaign. Where does Israel fit into the larger U.S.-backed Middle Eastern order alongside Gulf states like Saudi Arabia? And and how did this particular intensity and unquestionability of the U.S.-Israel relationship come to be? What what drives it? Is it just raw U.S. geopolitical interest? Is it the Israel lobby? I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of issues or a lot of things working together here. I mean, I, I want to talk really, I'm going to answer your kind of simple question with the simple answer to talk about APAC and the Israel lobby. But I also do want to talk about just the sheer numbers of evangelical Christians in the United States and their political power and the military industrial complex. The fact that like the money that we send to Israel is also spent on American arms and how that plays into the defense industry. I think there's a lot of interests that are that are converging. But just to say, like in terms of what Jewish currents covers and and the broader way that Jews have organized themselves and organized themselves very effectively uh, and organized money, including money from these evangelical communities to uh, put into the political process uh, such that there has been a a consensus that is very hard to step out of. I mean, we just saw APAC in the last uh, round of elections pump an unprecedented amount of money into democratic primaries against progressive challengers, some of which have never even expressed an opinion on Israel-Palestine, but where there was fear that they would kind of come into Congress and join the squad and and cause a problem for them. This is, I mean, I just want to say, because I know I'm talking on the dig, like, I feel like there are American leftists who are like, well, Israel-Palestine isn't really my issue or whatever. But this is a, a broad question of the horizon for leftist politics in this country more broadly, because Everything in the electoral landscape is being routed essentially through this issue. And like in the middle of a climate crisis and a debt crisis and all these other things, there's a, a political conversation that's being constrained 
primarily on Israel-Palestine, uh, where there's enormous amount of money going into to defeating it. Nora? You know, initially, to understand, you know, complete, unequivocal U.S. support for Israel, that's rooted in, in the 1967 war, some 19 years after Israel is established, we see the United States basically create a no peace, no war policy that wants to balance its Arab monarchical, you know, monarchies and regimes against Israel and to create a sort of equilibrium in the Middle East. It's in this context that Israel launches the 1967 war, even against um, U.S. Um, entreaties not to, because the U.S. sought to achieve a diplomatic solution with Egypt. But once Israel revealed itself as a victor in six days without U.S. assistance to now become the occupying power across such vast Arab tracts of land, the Egyptian Sinai, the Syrian Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, that's when the Lyndon B. Johnson administration sees in Israel uh, a significant Cold War asset and pivots almost pivots very quickly and establishes this new policy of ensuring Israel's qualitative military edge in the region, whereby it can defeat singularly or collectively any Middle Eastern powers, and where it also um, ensures that you know diplomatic impunity and immunity um, in order to achieve a political solution as opposed to you know an internationally you know an international regulated solution so because what you can achieve politically will reflect the balance of power as opposed to what might be achieved internationally will have to reflect certain norms and so we see these two policies inaugurated in the aftermath of the 1967 war specifically in the context of the US wanting to ensure you know its influ- its sphere of influence across the middle east in competition with the soviet union now that all makes sense and is sufficient to explain the us's unequivocal support until the fall of the soviet union and then at this point one has to explain well now the us doesn't necessarily have this competition has achieved its own sphere of influence there's permanent peace with Egypt, within a couple of years, there was permanent peace with Jordan. You know, it's there isn't necessarily a threat to U.S. access um, and even necessarily hegemony, although there's certainly challenge. And so what explains support at that level afterwards? And here that's where we have, you know, in addition to what's been deeply ingrained is a lot of cultural reasons, you know, things that, you know, like scholars like Amy Kaplan have shown Israel by this time, now becomes a part of American culture and American identity. And so it's not merely, you know, if it was just this coercive politics of of a military policy and national interest, I think that that facade would have broken down very quickly as it, you know, as it is amongst the left or a progressive base that can see through that. Um, But then what explains the ongoing, enduring commitment, I think is quite cultural. It's narratives, it's narratives of exile. It's the fact that we actually have no idea, even though it's part of, you know, anti-Semitism is part of all elementary and junior high school curriculums, is never defined. And so now anti-Semitism is grafted on, you know, the fight against anti-Semitism is grafted on um, and onto the Middle East and conflated with um, the safety of Israel in ways that those things are much harder to unearth. And I think it's both our anemic understanding of race, racism, certainly on anti-Semitism, but on all forms of race and racism. I mean, there's a book ban in Florida. There's a a way in which Americans who are both, you know, completely have a complete amnesia and a denial about their, their settler identities have a complete denial and disavowal of racism and wanting to be responsible for it are in fact, you know, immersed in their own global war on terror and all the Islamophobic tropes that align with it. You know, these these are points of vulnerability amongst an American public uh, that makes it very hard to combat. Yeah, Americans see themselves reflected there. 100%. Israel becomes the easternmost front for them, especially after, you know, 2001 becomes the easternmost front against the war on terror. And so that's another iteration. So I guess, Daniel, in response to your question, 
there isn't one single explanation to understand this, right? I get very frustrated with those who want to say it's APAC or, you know, it's a, yes, it is that, but not only that. Yes, it is, you know, the Israel is a Cold War asset, but it's not only that. Yes, it's the war on terror, but it's not only that, right? And so we have to understand that this is evolving and continues to find new life. And now, you know, as, as one colleague put it, Zionism found a new lifeline in this latest um attack. Well, on on that note, there there were, especially a week and a half ago, a week ago, there were calls to condemn the killing of, of so many Israeli civilians as part of any statement about what's going on, or or from many corners, especially in the center and the right, the demand that Israeli deaths are all that can be discussed. And some commentators have, have said that recognizing Israeli civilian deaths is is a precondition to to moral and politically effective action. But then others have said that we have to refuse a rhetorical game that only serves to obscure the fundamental context of apartheid and that facilitates Israeli state violence. Gabe, Gabe Wynett wrote the fact that Israel is, quote, a machine for the conversion of grief into power is a hideous fact. For what it means is that it is not possible to publicly grieve an Israeli Jewish life lost to violence without tithing ideologically to the IDF, whether you like it or not. When faced with questions of denouncing Hamas's violence, how should we respond? And what and what is this injunction doing as a form of political speech? Could I just like could I just say one thing about the meta of this whole conversation? Sure. I really resented this whole conversation, like whether or not I agree with like Gabe or Josh or, you know, whatever. I I felt like it was the totally wrong conversation to be had in that moment. I agree. And I I really saw it as uh, an expression of despair, uh, of real despair, like a a helplessness on on a movement where I think actually these are people who need to recognize that they're on the same side and get their shit together and like show up against a potential genocide or a genocide that's unfolding right in front of us. And I found it, I found that it played into a kind of liberal narrative around the left losing its way and stuff like that in ways that I felt was unhelpful. And I also, I also think that like, look, like I've written before about the ways that I think that grief denied becomes grievance. And I think that we're seeing that across the board that that there are like grievances multiplying about who gets to grieve and who doesn't and whatever. And and I feel like the the difficulty in all of this is that the death is multiplying so much faster than anyone can grieve. There was no grief on the Israeli side because there was an immediate attack of Palestinians in Gaza. And and that also has to do with the with the Israeli response. That there's actually, you know, they could have actually taken some time to grieve and and also some time to get their hostages back, for example, in that period. But instead they decided, let's just go for more death, you know? I don't mean to like shut down your question, but like I'm, I've sort of been having these conversations like over and over again, and I feel exhausted by them because I think it's very obvious that that people should have the right to grieve the people that are close to them, and also that those that and and also obvious that 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 expression of of personal grief does have political dimensions, and that we have to think about what those dimensions are, and also obvious that that like we have to turn our attention to the the matter, like to keep our eye on the ball here, you know, that all of these things are true. I've been feeling a sense of like everyone is right and everyone is wrong or something in this moment. And that like the the place that we need to recenter ourselves is the place that we were in even before this happened, which is that we're all trying to stop and, and to dismantle Israeli apartheid and colonialism and get somewhere else, you know? So I don't know. I mean, I know that's not really the answer that you're asking for, but that's just where I am with it. No, that's a good answer. There's a difference in the space to grieve all life and the way that we are not allowed to speak without condemnation first and the way that it's been used as a prerequisite to speak. And so we can't conflate those two things and yet it's the latter that's been happening, right? And it's really it's really unfair because it's also put, for example, Palestinians in a position where they don't even have room to even consider 
the extent of the sanctity of all civilian life um, here because immediately they're pushed up against the wall um, and, and, and forced to say, do you condemn or not? Do you condemn or not? And, and we're only given, we're not really given an option. We're either to disavow our people or to disavow a principle on, on, on the sanctity of civilian life. And so one thing that I've emphasized and tried probably not very well to do in the places that I've been pushed up against in, in horrible media is to insist that any, any condemnation of, of violence has to begin and end with a condemnation of the structural violence that has given rise to these conditions. There is a way that we can do both. And that is something, you know, for a lot of people who are watching this, it's, you know, one is to, is you want to affirm that Palestinians have the right to use armed force. And in doing so, you, but you also want to say that that right is qualified. It is not an unqualified use of force. And then to explain that even in these moments of atrocity, there is no parity between what an oppressed people do against, you know, this only nuclear power in the Middle East. Because what remains true is that this nuclear power has many options at its disposal to achieve, you know, uh, you know, to apply coercive pressure to achieve a particular outcome that this weaker, um, that an oppressed people don't have. So of course there's no parity. Even if they commit similar types of violence, there can't be parity because as an oppressed people, you didn't have the same amount of options to then be judged from this narrow, you know, framework, right? So now this, because of this, because we can't discuss this and also discuss that I want to be able for me, like I saw this and I, you know, I understood it as I don't understand. There hasn't even been room to be able to, you know, say that, Hey, I feel with Israelis. Instead, it was immediately I stand with Israel completely different. You know, that immediate collapse has put us in a position where I think has not been helpful to any of us to be able to, 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 to express our differences, the spectrum of where we are. Some people might very well be, no, absolutely anything is justified under these conditions. Others, like, you know, and something that I've been trying to explain, you know, for a lot of Palestinians in Gaza who might have, you know, been recruited to Hamas, who probably oppose it politically completely, but might have volunteered for this operation. For them, it was, you know, I'm going to die anyway, right? You know, but the idea to even be or, or or to even contemplate that maybe this operation went wrong, right? The fact that now, you know, Hamas, who, who expected Hamas to be confronted by a paper tiger? And that now that we see that Hamas is actually checking IDs, wants to distinguish the foreigners from others, is engaged in Red Cross negotiations, um, we're going back to what was initially said before we knew the extent of the losses of this was a clear operation to capture soldiers in order to initiate some sort of uh, a prisoner exchange with very clear demands. All of this nuance has been lost. All of this nuance has been lost. And so it's put us in a position where either we're for, now we're either for genocide or we're for Palestinian freedom. That's literally what's become of, of, of this, the, the conversation. I think what you're saying is so important because because it points to the conversations that need to be had right now in the sense of like, we, we are in a new moment. We get to decide what this moment means. And also like, and also these questions are being forced on us. I mean, like we have to rise to the moment and answer these questions. And we haven't really had that. Like there's been so many other things going on when you work in on this issue, you're con It's like, you know, it's a, an ongoing catastrophe. You have to respond to it on, you know, in the day to day. That, these, that certain kinds of questions have just not been at the fore. And witnessing something like this that has actually taken us out of, of the status quo in ways that, I, you know, I think I could have anticipated but could never have imagined the scale means that we have also a responsibility to start dissecting these questions in greater depths, in, also in private, like helping us find the political, you know, conversation on the left. I mean, sometimes I feel frustrated with the conversation on the left because because I feel like it's not in touch with the with like the whole scope of conversations that are going on not in public. 
around some of these issues. And I think that we do have a choice about how, about the kind of politics we do from this moment, you know, and everybody's going to make a different decision in this way, but that like this question, either there's genocide on the one side or Palestinian liberation on the other, there's no political room in that. And we have to recognize also like when we're not giving an off ramp into something else, you know, so, yeah, no, and I just, I want to underscore that. I want to underscore that and say, because again, it's really not about the space for grief. As you said, Ariel, it wasn't like people pulled back and said, we are in a moment of grief. It was an immediate call for blood and vengeance, right? In a way, and 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 using these terms that have led us to this particular moment that we're in right now, in a way that, you know, it's it's atrocious to me for example, that on every interview, everybody wants to know if I condemn Hamas and I have to remind what Hamas is doing, they say, and I have to remind them Hamas isn't doing anything actually right now. They're holding hostages. What is Israel doing? Why aren't you asking me about what's actually you know, being done? And the other thing that's like taken for granted in that line of questioning is also, you know, it's taking for granted the fact that Hamas is already being punished has already been condemned, is already, you know, designated as a terrorist organization, has already been placed under siege and and under sanction, is already under investigation by the ICC. So there's, you know, the idea that you want, you want me to basically reify all the very punishments and structures that have created this, this incredible, incredible um, asymmetry uh, that, you know, it's, that's also part of this loaded question. And that led to the very violence that they're insisting that you denounce on television, the very structures. The very structure is, of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm literally having, I think this is why one of, I had a few interviews that weren't posted. And I think, I don't know that I felt, I don't know that, I, I think I just, as I'm watching this, I think I... I became, you know, I went off script of just trying to provide context to people. And it, this is not a moment for education, even though as a teacher, I want to teach, right? And so I got to the point where I was telling reporters, Hamas is not a monster. Hamas is a group of seven times, of, of young men, aged 17 to 35, who we've trapped in an open air prison and and subject to repeated bombardment and literally told the one option we have is to make your cage tighter. So if you only understand them as a monster, you don't understand that we created these conditions where we gave these young men no hope. This is our responsibility. Why would I condemn Hamas? I condemn us. I condemn us for creating these conditions. It is an international responsibility. And there's, you know, there's there's a way that the you know Western community wants to absolve itself, the same way it has absolved itself of this crisis, the same way it's uh, attempted to absolve itself of you know European anti-Semitism and genocide. They want to absolve themselves of these conditions that are ongoing right now. Who, frankly, at this pace, I mean, it's not sure. It's very reckless. It's not sure that if they actually draw in other regional powers that a major world war wouldn't, you know, erupt. We're witnessing an incredibly, incredibly chilling political environment with intense denunciations of of Americans who speak out in support of Palestine. And I think we're seeing this as a means both to marginalize the left in general, sort of opportunistically, and also, of course, specifically to shut down criticism of Israel. And... Some have compared this moment to the period after 9-11. And, and I think there's something, there's something to that. This is indeed disturbing and incredibly constricting feeling. But, but on the other hand, I think the left is stronger now than it was then. And, and so is the pro-Palestinian movement. And I even, think, I even think the media environment is a bit less dystopian. What sort of political culture do we find ourselves in here in the U.S. as a left and as a pro-Palestinian movement? in particular, and what do you see as the way forward? I do feel like the left may have to get a lot smarter, a lot faster, because what's going to come at us is going to be so difficult. And and as you said, the intention is to not just marginalize, but like really put people in a position to take away, you know, to take away their livelihoods and their, you know, I mean, this has been happening to Palestinians for 
years in the United States, but it's only going to get worse. I, I think that I am afraid that there's a tendency to be anti-political on the left, as in like not actually engaged in a conversation that it takes into account or like engaged in a politics that is the purest, loudest, most hardline form of a politics uh, for, you know, public consumption. And I think that there is a way in which people need to start having conversations privately and, you know, with as many people who are stakeholders in this process and who want the same thing that they can to come up with a strategy that makes sense. A strategy, a strategy to win, to actually... A, strat- a strategy to win. Yeah. And I think that that probably looks different than like some of the discourse that we see. And I, you know, like I said, I don't think now is the time to begin infighting. And I, I think if we had another hour and we were in a different place and the things that were happening on the ground weren't happening, we could talk more about that. It just doesn't feel like the right container right now. But I do think that um, there's an imperative that the left gets smarter about how we talk about this issue on a public on a public stage and like how we strategize with all of the people involved who want the same thing, which is the end of the system. Nora. You know, what is the state of the world we're in? I mean, a lot of I've had to I've had to ask a lot of other people because I can't tell. You know, even hearing you say that the media landscape is less dystopian, I'm I'm like, is it? You know, because in 2021, I did feel that there was plenty of room and I felt that there was actually a conversation that's not here. I feel a, a, a very, very palpable um, reversal, a very palpable reversal. Um, it does feel very dystopian. The way that the media has talked about this, you know, as Miriam Berghuti said on X, she said, I'm not going to answer any more questions about Hamas unless you can tell me who Dev and Abu Abeda are. These journalists on the line have, you know, for them, this is terrorism and they just, you know, it's evil and there's no context. They've literally not taken five wars on the Palestinian people in Gaza since 2008. And they have not once did like a debrief amongst themselves. It's insane to me. So I don't feel, I do feel like it's dystopian. And to the extent that they're, you know, to the extent that they're sharing what's happening in Gaza, it's very clear what the line is. You can come and cry about your dead, but you cannot point fingers about who is accountable or how it happened. It's like the way people want to talk about racism as if it's a natural disaster. We can talk about all the ways it hurts us, but nobody wants to talk about what it is, how it operates, who is responsible. So for me, the media is absolutely dystopian. And in terms of the political, the political movement, I'm, you know, I'm not sure, but obviously it's moving really, really, really quickly. Like at first, it's only been what, 11 days? 11 days. 11 days. At first, I promise you, Palestinians had no friends. Everybody stood back. You know, it was almost this um, probationary solidarity and we saw the limits of it. And then now, as, you know, Israeli atrocities are unspeakable. I mean, at this point, it doesn't care where you are on the spectrum. At this point, if you don't say anything, you're complicit in genocide. There's genocidal intent. There is genocidal warfare. All of these things are verifiable. So the fact that we're seeing an outpouring, I don't think necessarily speaks to an infrastructure of movement. I think it speaks to the conditions of of where we are. And insofar as, you know, one thing that a friend of mine also reminded me, insofar as we shouldn't necessarily judge the movement by our ability to stem these atrocities or not, because we have the ability to do a lot of things. But one of the things we haven't necessarily mastered is how we how we dismantle militarism and warfare. I'm old ish. And so a lot of the feelings that are running through me are the feelings that I had when we marched against the war in Iraq. That was huge. That was global. We were arrested. It was massive. Iraq now 20 years later is decimated with generations marked for very low prospects 
of robust life, decimated with disease and unfertile grounds, you know, and conflict. And my young students have no idea what the Iraq war is. So I don't, I don't want to conflate our, you know, we don't have an anti-war infrastructure, even if we might have a left that can, might be able to achieve other things. Noura Arakat and Ariel Angel, thank you both very much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Noura Arakat is a Palestinian human rights attorney and professor at Rutgers, New Brunswick. She is a co-founding board member of Jadalia Ezine, an editorial board member of the Journal of Palestine Studies, and the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Ariel Angel is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents, the leading magazine of the Jewish American left. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Baby. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. <laughs>